I was thinking this week just in terms of friendship and just kind of people I spend time with. And probably the most, most of you have something that, that is, a, is a close facsimile to this. I, I have people I see every week. Man, I, I got people I see every week. I've got uh, friends I talk to most weeks. I've got friends that I, that I see occasionally. I talk to them maybe once a, a month or so. And then I've got some of these folks that are just kind of the lifelong friends. Maybe they live in another city. They live in another country. Um, one of the things Valerie and I experienced is that since we served with the International Mission Board, we lived overseas. I mean, we have friends all over the world now. And so I have friends that are always awake, which is a bad thing if they always have your cell phone, you know. And so, but they live all over the world, but I, I don't really see them very often. I see some of them uh, every six months or so, uh, once a year. And then some of them, it'll be years and years and years before I see them, you know, three, four, five, six years in between times when we get together, times when we visit one another. And, 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 you know, every time I get together with this group of friends that I haven't seen in a long time, invariably, at some point in the conversation, one of us is going to say, man, it's like we can just pick right back up where we left off. Our friendship is so good, so amazing. It's like nothing ever changed for us. We just pick right back off, up where we left off. And that's a, that's a mark, that's a testament to how great our friendship is, or at least that's how our, our conversation goes. And I was thinking about that this week, and is that really a mark of how great our friendship is? The fact that I don't see somebody for five years and we get together and, and we're able to talk and converse about, about all these things? Man, we have five years of things to catch up on. I have five years of, of goofy things my kids have done, stupid things I have done. I have five years of amazing college football to discuss. If their team is different than mine, I have five years of, of talking down about their team to them. If they happen to be a Tennessee fan, oh my word. I mean, all the things I can say to them. They're an Alabama fan. I'm just probably not friends with them, right? But, but the, the fact that we have a lot of things to discuss and talk about is not an indication that our friendship's all that great. It's really just an indication that we haven't talked in a long time. Our prayer lives are very similar to that. Most of us, most of us, if we're going to be honest, if I gave you a time log and I said this week, for the next seven days, you're going to go in, you're going to record time spent in prayer. Well, you're probably going to ramp it up. But if I ask you to do that over a month, by week three, week four, you're falling off, and I'm really seeing regular patterns, what you're actually doing when nobody's watching, right? And then you get to the end, you're like, oh, i got to increase this. Pastor's looking at it. But if you're honest, in your heart of hearts, what it looks like is most of you, you wake up in the morning, you say, oh, woke up late. I might catch you later, God. You get to breakfast, cursory prayer, move through. You get to lunch, hey, oh, 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 don't eat that yet. i got to pray. You get to dinner, i got to pray. You lay your head on the, on the pillow at night, you start praying, God... You're so good. Oh, oh, I fell asleep. Oh, God, hold on, let me sit up. And, and you, you kind of go through this, and, and you fall asleep praying, and somehow you feel like that endears you to God. God, I fell asleep on your lap again. You're so awesome. Thanks, big guy. And this is kind of what most of our prayer lives look like. And then crisis happens. Your wife gets sick, you get sick, you lose your job. House burns to the ground. You lose everything. You look around and you don't recognize anybody around you. You find some sin that's been just kind of festering in you has burst. Everybody sees it. And what was once private is now incredibly public. Where do we find ourselves? 
on our faces, we're broken before God, and we have this rich, vibrant, life-transforming prayer life. We're desperate. We need it. This is not how our prayer lives are meant to be. This is not how our communication, our communion with God is designed to be. And what the Apostle Paul offers us in Colossians 4, 2 through 4, is a wonderful corrective in a beautiful picture of what our prayer lives can be and what our prayer lives should be. Follow along with me. Let me read from the letter to the Colossians, Paul's words, picking up in verse 2 of chapter 4. Paul writes, and he says, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. And at the same time, pray also for us that God may open, us, open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. And so we'll find, uh, basically, if you were to look at this passage, that Paul splits this from this, this internal description of what prayer should be like in verse 2 to an external application of what our prayer lives for others should look like in verses 3 and 4. Well, let's start with the internal. Let's get ourselves right before we begin to, to offer to do something for somebody else, okay? Look at what he says. He starts off and he says, continue steadfastly in prayer. Now, this is an imperative. This is a command. And this is a command not just for those uh, who received this letter, but this is a command for you and I today. Paul writes and he says, continue steadfastly in prayer. And so he gives us, in a sense, this posture of bracing ourselves and actively fully engaging in the process. Too many of us, our prayer lives are, are, are really kind of this passable, uh, pathetic indifference of random utterances. It's like you were to walk into a room and you were to say, fire extinguisher, door, light, pew. This is kind of how most of our prayer lives come together, of no sense of direction, of no sense of, of, of really thought going into them. They're just these random utterances that come out of our mouths or from our minds rolling around. And this is why so many of us find ourselves in the middle of prayer. You're three minutes into the prayer and all of a sudden you have a really well-formulated grocery list, Right? You're three minutes into prayer and all of a sudden you're rehearsing a conversation you have with somebody. You're three minutes into prayer and you're wondering who the next character on The Walking Dead is to die. This is how it works. You're three or four minutes into prayer and all of a sudden you're thinking, oh man, I said that already. Let me add a couple of, oh God's dear father, you're wonderful, and I'll be right back and running again. This is why I encourage so many people to write your prayers. Write your prayers. It's a wonderful exercise for us to have a prayer journal. And they, they, they're, they're not long, but they're concrete. They're not long, but you're sitting there, and you will not write with your, print, your pen, oh God, oh God, oh God, dot, 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 toilet paper, beef bouillon cubes, dog food. Oh, I'm sorry. I trailed off again. When we write, when we make it this kinesthetic effort, it brings our whole bodies back in and we find that there is great economy in the word usage we use to cry out to pray to God. And beyond this, when we're writing, when we're dating, when we're journaling our prayers, it gives us an opportunity three, four, five months later, we look back and we said, oh, look at that, three months ago I prayed that I would quit being a jerk. 
I've got to ask somebody how I'm doing with that. Hey, friend, three months ago, I prayed that I quit being a jerk. And they say, you might want to keep praying on it. Back to the drawing board. He paints this picture and he says, be steadfast in prayer. Jesus, coughs are contagious. Jesus in Luke 18 gives us a parable which teaches us this. Flip to Luke 18. Luke 18, starting in verse 1, it says, And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. It would seem that this parable is in some sense designed for what Paul is seeking to communicate here when he says, be steadfast in prayer. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. He sounds pretty wonderful. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterwards he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. You know what he's saying? Man, she is so stinking annoying. If I just give her what she wants, I'll be left alone. That's what this judge says. Look at what Jesus turns this and says. Hear what the unrighteous judge says? And we're not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night will he delay long over them I tell you he will give justice to them speedily nevertheless when the son of man comes will he find faith on earth Jesus doesn't make a parallel and say God is like this unjust judge he says because God is so incredibly different because his character is unmatched because of how incredibly loving and merciful and gracious he is he longs for you to come to him he longs for you to pray for him pray to him this is why Paul can write in 1 Thessalonians 5:17 that our prayer should be without ceasing and in Ephesians 3:20 in Ephesians 3:20 what we see when Paul goes in and describes who God is and this God that we are praying to, look at what he says. He says, He is the God who is able to do far more abundantly than we ask or we think, and it's according to the power working within us. The power God used to raise Jesus from the dead is the power working within you. This all-powerful God who spoke everything into existence, who upholds all things by the power of his word, this God is who you pray to. And the amazing thing is, many of us find ourselves moving into the cyclical pattern of anemic and weak prayer. We move into difficulty, our prayer lives get better. We move into ease, our prayer lives diminish. But notice that what Paul doesn't afford in there is this roller coaster of prayer because he calls us to great determination. He calls us to be steadfast in this endeavor. Look how he goes on to describe it. He says, continue steadfastly in prayer. And the first thing he says is being watchful. Being watchful. Now you'll notice that if you do a word study on the word watchful there, what Paul is likely making a reference to is found in terms of Jesus telling people, watch, the Lord is coming. Be watchful. 
Be looking around, be paying attention, looking for signs, being observant. And, and, and in the noun form, we find that Jesus uses it one time and one time alone. Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, and what does he ask the disciples to do? To stay awake, to pay attention. And what does he find them doing instead? Sleeping, snoozing, napping. And so what we see in this is that our prayer lives cannot be just kind of rote. Our prayer lives cannot be us just blindly uttering things out and and saying, oh, that was five minutes, I'm all done. Time to go to bed, God. My phone told me it's time to go to bed. My watch told me it was time to go to bed. My wife elbowed me in the ribs and told me it was time to go to bed. What we see in this is that our prayer lives, if we want them to continue steadfastly, we have to do so with our eyes up and alert and paying attention. One of the things we may find One of the things we may find is that our prayers seem to be focused on those things that are going to happen anyway, those things that we're going to see come to pass anyway. And so we're we're praying safe prayers. We pray just blankly, God, let your will be done. God, would you let me wake up in the morning? We're, We're praying safe things that we have some general assumption that will come to bear to pass. In some sense, what our prayers need to be, if they're going to be steadfast, is God, would you change, would you remove this thing in my life that I have no way how it's going to be? God, would you affect change on a wholesale level in my life? And then the most dangerous prayer we can pay is, God, would you give me something worthy of bringing to you? Would you humble me? Would you let me see what areas of my life I'm not bringing in submission to you? We need to be watchful. We're very good at watching other people. We're very good at watching them and saying, God, help humble them. God, make them not a jerk. Make them not an idiot. And I thank you for those who are praying that for me. But God, God, would you do this for them? Would you do that for them? But our prayers in being watchful, God, what things are you bringing in my life that you would have me pray and entreat, come to your throne and entreat you over, or be watchful. Look at the last modifier here. It says they're to be watchful, and lastly he says they are to be made with thanksgiving. We joyously come before the throne of God, and in so doing there is unassailable joy in us in the midst of our prayer. Do you see how this can't possibly just the time when our lives have, have been destroyed, they've been laid low? How he can't possibly be talking about just that isolated instance when we find ourselves just spread too thin. This is our cycle, but what he calls us to do is find joy in the midst of our prayers. We're steadfast, we're unmovable, Why? Because he's holding us there. And in the midst of our prayer, communion with God, he says, in this, rejoice. Rejoice and give thanks in the midst of our prayers. In the midst of this tremendous communion with God, he is transforming who we are, and he makes the most dour Debbie Downer able to praise and rejoice in prayer. Right? He makes this person with this, you wonder if they've had a frown tattooed on their face so they just don't have to do it anymore. Oh, that's some great ink you've got there. He's able to turn that frown upside down, right? 
He's able to affect internally who that person is and change them so that even in or if they face tremendous difficulty, yet they're able to rejoice. Why? Because the lion's share of their time over months, over years, over decades has been spent in tremendous intimacy with God. And from that position of being steadfast, even in difficulty, they're able to rejoice. And the amazing thing that Paul does here is he, he gives us those pictures of, of thanksgiving, those pictures of rejoicing. And it's really been this thing over and again throughout the course of this letter that he's told them over and again they have to rejoice. Verse 3, we thank God always for you. We rejoice. In verse 12 of chapter 1, again, he says, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Over and again, the letter to the Colossians has been a letter that has demonstrated what it is to give thanks. Chapter 2 and verse 7, he says that they are rooted and built up in him and they are established in faith just as you were taught. And what are they? They are a bounding in thanksgiving. And then lastly, in verse 17 of chapter 3, listen to these words. The apostle Paul writes and says, and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. As Christians, we should be those whose lives are typified by giving thanks, and those especially in the midst of our communication, communion with God, that it would be able to be described as thanksgiving, a prayer of thanksgiving. But look what Paul does. He moves from the internal and he begins to move to the external. The idea of we have moved beyond praying for ourselves and now we are praying for other people. As a Christian, as a Christian, I can tell you that if you spend the lion's share of your time praying only for yourselves, then you're missing out on an incredible blessing of interceding for other people. Sometimes people that you don't know. And it's not like when you uh, think of somebody and you text them, hey, thought of you, thought of you today, just want to send you a text, want to send you a short email, want to hire a carrier pigeon months before so I could tell you at some point that I'm thinking of you. Prayer is not affected, it's not made more effective by notifying somebody that you have prayed for them. You can do that, there's no Christian guidebook that says it's inappropriate, it's impolite. Mrs. Manners is not saying, shame on you, you shouldn't do that. Don't notify people. You know, she's, I, I imagine that's Mrs. Manners' voice. I'm sorry if it's not. But, but, but our prayers aren't, aren't effective. We're not playing mental mind games with people. Somehow they're going to have a better, brighter day if we let them know. So we're interceding. You're going before the God who's able to do infinitely more than you ask, think, or imagine. And you're asking him to sovereignly intervene. You're asking him to bring his omnipotence. You're asking him to bring his omniscience to their lives to affect incredible change in them. Some of you, some of you have husbands who are just, uh, they're the jerk. It's just kind of who they are. Does it help to tell him that? Looking at no one? God can begin to change his heart. God can begin to change your heart for him. Some of you have wives that are, are loveless cold fish. 
There's no warmth. There's no emotion in them. They look at you and their eyes are void. In interceding, God, would you give them love? Would you give them joy? You're not primarily praying this selfish thing so it would be returned to you. God is changing your heart in the midst of prayer as well. Recognize that in the midst of prayer, God is changing our hearts. He is changing and altering our affections because he is guiding us when we lay our hearts in his hands and say, God, would you change? Would you fundamentally alter my prayer life? Would you give me greater appreciation for who you are? So what Paul does here is he entrusts himself, his ministry, the ministry of Timothy, Epaphroditus, he entrusts all of this to the church in Colossae. Look at what he does here. Paul says, the same time you're praying this other stuff, pray also for us. Pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word. Now, I want you to understand, first and foremost, what Paul does is he asks someone to intercede on his behalf. He communicates to them that he needs something. As an aside, one of the reasons, one of the reasons that, that we don't have greater, better community and that more people don't know about issues is because we share them on a small scale, Right? So my wife and I are having uh, trouble with one another. I don't share that with people because I want nobody to know what issues we're having. I'm struggling with some certain sin. I don't share that with people because I'm going to muscle down and I'm going I'm to push through it and we're going to make it all better. What does Paul show us here? He knows that he needs the prayers of those around him. So he says, would you pray for them? Now, specifically, he's not asking for health. He's not asking for money. In this occasion, what he's asking for is that the gospel would be able to be communicated. Look at how he phrases it there. That you would pray that a door would be opened to us for the word. What an amazing prayer. Somebody comes up and says, Allie, what can I pray for you? Carol B., what can I pray for you? Sebastian, what can I pray for you? And your response would be that God would open a door for me to share the gospel. That's an amazing prayer. It shows Paul's heart. He desires to share the gospel. He desires to communicate the gospel in, to the point where he is asking other people to pray the same thing for him. He gives us this an amazing picture of what our hearts look like, should look like, in some sense, what our prayer could be. God, would you open a door for the gospel for Dee and Mary Jean. God, would you open a door for the gospel for Jim and Carolyn. God, would you open a door for the gospel for, for John and Susan, for Kelly and Lacey, for Steve and Janice, for Steve and Siri. God, would you open a door for the gospel? What an amazing thing if we would turn and begin to pray that for ourselves, but also pray that for one another. God, when Doug is at work this week, when somebody comes in to get financial advice, would you open the door for the gospel? God, when Zach is at work and he's, he's quoting a job or he's working on a roof or installing windows or siding, would you open a door for the gospel? What an amazing prayer. What a transformative prayer. If we would seek to intervene on behalf of one another. 
So that's what he asked. He said, would you pray that a door would be open for the gospel? And look, next he moves, not just that an opportunity would present itself, but also that the message would be clear. He said, open a door for the gospel to declare the mystery of Christ. And he says, on, a, on account of this, I'm in prison. The text actually says, I'm bound. So Paul is in shackles at the time of writing this. And the whole reason he wants that door open, verse 4, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Paul, who is accused of Peter in the end of 2 Peter of being a little bit obtuse, a little bit difficult to understand, recognizes, in some sense, his perceived inability. He recognizes the need for an omnipotent God to make him clear. To make him clear. Man, I see this every week. One of our kids will walk up and ask me something. Dad, how does, a, how does an engine work? Well, hold on now. Ah, ah, ah. And I begin to give this incredibly nuanced, delightful, some might say, explanation of how this thing works. And you can just see the kids glass over. What they're looking for is the pedal on the right makes it go. The pedal on the right makes it go. It gives it gas. It makes the car go. That's what they want. What we are doing in this, what Paul is asking, is that his gospel communication comes with tremendous clarity. And I would just, I've, I've got to tell you, if you have not practiced your communication of the gospel, chances are that your first opportunity to share the gospel with somebody is going to look like verbal, verbal, blah, 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 about like that. That was unintentional, but what I was trying to communicate was verbal vomiting. Whew, I said it. I didn't do it, but I said it. Somebody comes up, and, and, and they're going to say something closely approximating something religious. Do you know where Brahms is? You're like, Brahms! It's two doors down from the church. Let me tell you about Jesus. And they're going to be like, I just need some milk. Man, I heard it was on sale. Two for four bucks. No, no, no! You don't need milk! You need the living water. And they're like, why all of a sudden did you turn into an African-American evangelist? Like, I have no idea. That's just what happens when people ask me about Brahms. I get all excited. But I only need a gallon. You only need a gallon. Let's go in together. Here's two bucks. Let's walk out. We need to practice. We need to be those who are ready to communicate the gospel, those who are ready to, to say it, and, and we're not verbally vomiting on somebody, we're not giving some amazingly nuanced apologetic argument that they're not asking for, we're telling them quite simply, do you know God loves you? That he sent his son Jesus to die for you? That Jesus was raised in the grave and that you can have forgiveness of sins if you believe in his name? If they want to know more, they'll ask more. If they disbelieve, it gives you something to pray for. God, would you work in their heart? Would you work in Peter's heart? Would you work in Manuel's heart? Would you work in Jesus' heart? Would you work in Samantha's heart? We're not asked to be theological geniuses and and to, to describe all the intricacies of these things, but we're asked to be faithful. And what Paul prays is... One, would you, would you pray to God that you open a door? Two, would you pray that I be found faithful? And three, would you pray that they would understand? It's this amazing prayer that he gives us in this. So what we see in this delightful two or three verses on prayer is that prayer needs to be this thing which is internal, that is steadfast, but it needs also to have an external application. 
We need to be those who are not merely navel gazers and praying. We're not merely praying for all those things that happen in our world, in our lives, but those who are praying for others around us. Amen? Amen. Let me close by reading you this prayer written many years ago. There's a tremendous book called Valley of Vision. It's a collection of Puritan prayers, and in it, you can grow closer to God by reading the prayers of some great men and women over the, over the years. He writes, he says, Great God, in public and private and sanctuary and home, may my life be steeped in prayer. Filled with the spirit of grace and supplication, each prayer perfumed with the incense of atoning blood. Help me, defend me, until from praying ground I pass to the realm of unceasing prayer, urged by my need, invited by thy promises, called by thy spirit. I enter thy presence, worshiping thee with godly fear, awed by thy majesty, greatness, glory, but encouraged by thy love. Would you pray with me? Father God, we are so thankful that we're able to pray to you on our own behalf. God, I pray that our prayers would be characterized by being steadfast and unceasing. God, I pray that our prayers would be that they are a reflection of our understanding of your character. God, I pray that you would also captivate us, give us desire to pray for those around us. Father, we pray for those who have yet to surrender themselves to you this morning, that that they would understand the simple gospel, that you have loved them in the midst of their sin, that you sent your son Jesus to be the atoning sacrifice for their sin, that if they cry out and believe, they move in confession or repentance, that if they turn from their sin and turn to Jesus, that on the basis of his overcoming sin and death, that they might be saved. So, Father, we pray for them, for their salvation. That just as Paul asked the church in, Col- in Colossae to pray for an open door, so too, God, that you would open the eyes of their heart. That, God, as the scriptures have been opened, that you would open their heart. That you would make a way for them to respond. That they would come in faith, surrender themselves to you, and be forever welcomed into your loving arms. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.